Hello and welcome everyone. Jared Blarney here with Sacktown Talks, bringing you a great show today. Uh, we've been really waiting for this guest. Excited to have her on, Dr. Shirley Weber joining us today. Dr. Weber, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Fine. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Look forward to it. Hey. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's obviously been a, an interesting year with uh, COVID-19 and uh, you know things are changing relatively fast. Uh, can you kind of give us an update, I guess, on on your bill package and I guess how your legislative year has, has been going so far? Well, you know, uh, at one point we all thought that COVID-19 was going to be so loud and so difficult that there'd be very little we could do other than respond to COVID-19. Um, we entered the year with great aspirations and great thoughts about the things we could do in, in, in the area of social justice and uh, found ourselves uh, not even being able to say a word other than COVID-19, COVID-19, COVID-19. Right. And, uh, and rightfully so, it's because it is uh, something that is so very important. And then, of course, with the legislature going out on such a hiatus in terms of not being able to meet for many, many weeks, um, that made many of us kind of concerned. And so, therefore, a lot of the things and ideas that we had that we thought would be good uh, were um, were pared down in terms of our ability to, to basically meet the needs because you can't do 20, 30 bills when you only have a few weeks to accomplish it. Um, but the two major issues that we were particularly looking at one, of course, most important was ACA-5 and the, uh, the, uh, the initiative, the California initiative that we now have to have on the ballot. Uh, great concern that we were not going to be able to get that through because of the short time frame, the expectations to get it on the ballot. You had to have things done by June, uh, couldn't meet with members because of social distancing and, and, you know, on and on and on. And so for many, they thought the bill was dead, you know, that, that we, that that we should that maybe we shouldn't move forward with it because we couldn't accomplish it. Uh, but you know, I believe that we could, and so did the Black Caucus and and the other caucuses chimed in as well. And um, and as a result, as you probably know, ACA passed out of both houses with uh, more than two thirds votes, which is required, and it's now on the ballot as Prop 16 uh, to repeal uh, Proposition 209 and to restore affirmative action as an opportunity back to California for uh, cities to choose if they choose to use race as one of the many variables and gender as one of the many variables. They now have the ability to do that. So the ban on any of those kinds of activities would, would be lifted if this initiative passes. So that was a major, major, major movement for all of us uh, in terms of making sure that we got that on the ballot. Uh, and so that's important. Uh, the other issue, of course, reparations is also a major issue that uh, is moving forward in, in the Capitol and has gotten out of all the committees at this point. And hopefully we'll get to the governor's desk very soon. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but we're fortunate to have been able to move some significant pieces of legislation, as well as some others that will be coming in the next day or so. Yeah, you know, in political science, we always learn about policy windows and kind of ripe timing and kind of take advantage of the moment. Uh, can you kind of, I guess, reflect on, I guess, from when you first got in to the legislature to now on, on the things you've kind of plotted along and kind of all you, you know, what you've been able to achieve and kind of take advantage of these policy windows? Well, you know, one of the, the I think part of it is, is policy windows, you know, the timing uh, comes around and, and it's a good timing. But also, I think in addition to that, you know, one of the things that people sometimes fail to realize is that it is extremely important when you're in an elected position that you that you understand the people you work with. You develop a good relationship with those people as a person who's honest and direct and don't play games. And as a result, that has served me well in, in the Capitol because as I have taken on some hard issues that weren't necessarily properly timed, you know, when you look at uh, issues like racial profiling, 
wasn't properly timed, although, you know, we kept pushing the issue and pushing the issue and the information that was there, or, or 392, uh, you know, that was a difficult, extremely difficult bill that nobody thought would get out. And, and it wasn't that we had something that, I mean, surely the issue here with, uh, with uh, what, what happened in, in Sacramento was important, but, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily Stefan Clark issue. It was not the only issue. There were many, many other issues that were there. And, it was, and that didn't seem for many to really turn the tide. But I think the constant and persistent discussion about those issues, not just that one, but so many that we've had before, uh, the bill being somewhat of a reasonable bill to, to say, you know, you shouldn't shoot someone unless it's absolutely necessary. Most people kind of believe that. And framing it in a way that people understood that right. this, is, this is something, you know, that, that it doesn't require rocket science. It wasn't really a complicated bill. And we kept basically giving the facts and the information over and over again about what had happened in other places and how it had not increased the number of police officers getting killed, how it had decreased the number of violent activities in San Francisco and Seattle. And so we just kept hammering the, da hammering the data. And... And law enforcement, of course, went after me with all they had. And, uh, and fortunately for me, I had had such a long history of service in San Diego that they couldn't penetrate the communities to say this is an evil woman you know, who hates police officers and those kinds of things. Because, right. you know, I'd been around the community for a very long time. And, um, and as a result, we didn't have that as a reputation as some, you know, uh, you know just some flamethrower uh, just doing things for attention. And so that didn't work very well. And eventually the, the constant support of the, of the members in the assembly that said, you got to talk to her, you got to be reasonable. You know, she'll make, you know, she, she's a reasonable person. And uh, so those kind of all came together. And, and, and I think as a result of that, we were able to, to move those bills forward. This one surely was one of timing though. This was one where the time had come for, for some movement and, um, and and uh, in terms of prop two, uh, in terms of prop two hundred nine and affirmative action, you know, everywhere I went, students were talking about it. The legislature had been talking about it for a long time. Many of the people I discovered that many of those in the legislature knew about affirmative action, had been the either the beneficiary of it or had friends who had gone to school or gotten jobs and opportunities and those kinds of things because of some outreach program. So you had right. a different population than you had twenty four years ago. And that I think helped significantly in framing it. But even but then when COVID came in, you know we were optimistic before that. We thought we had the wind behind us. And Lord have mercy, here comes COVID, and nobody can talk about anything but that. And you can't get a conversation <laughs> about any other item but that. And it's like this is not going to work. And I was talking to some woman into uh, who. Uh, who always gives me good information and advice. And she was saying, don't worry, Shirley. You know, she says, God is going to send you a ram in the bush. And I had to think about that. I had to think about what was that? Well, that was Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his son who just believed that he would not happen. And what happened, they said, there'll be a ram in the bush. And sure enough, there was this other object that sacrificed and made it possible. And so when, they, when George Floyd was, was murdered, it, 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 it created an opportunity, I think, for people to think that, wow, for once, we can see this, you know, because I, as I told folks on the floor, my, my greatest angst was I was going to have to get on the floor once again and it tell folks that, that racism is real and have them look at me and say, yeah, but not that bad, okay? Yeah, but it doesn't require that much change. Yeah, but look at you, you overcame it. You know, I mean, I'm going to have to convince this group of people 
most of them who've not lived in these communities, that racism was alive and well in California. And when this happened, I said, I told them, this is one thing I don't have to do. And I was dreading having to do it. So now the question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to pretend like it's not there? The inequality, we talked about the inequality for a while concerning COVID, you know, that COVID brought out all the negative things that existed in this nation. And you see how the poor continue to suffer even more. You know, we met with the governor and said, you know, this is our theme, that uh, when, when, when America catches a cold, Black people get pneumonia. You know, this is, this is our reality. And, uh, and surely it was borne out in everything we saw. But then when we saw uh, George, uh, being, George Floyd being murdered on television, it shocked the nation because for once they could see that they couldn't rationalize it away. It, it wasn't a dark scene in the middle of the night where there was somebody was being pulled out of a car and you couldn't figure out what he was going to do with his hands or did he really have a, a shiny object or any of those things. You saw a man handcuffed with four police officers walking him on the sidewalk. And then you see him on the ground for almost nine minutes with a guy who has his knee in his neck and who does not appear to have any remorse. That in itself shook this country. And so people of all backgrounds and said, something is wrong, this racism is deep, and we must do something to respond to it. We can't not just pretend like it doesn't exist anymore. We've got to do something. And then that's when, you know, the issue of California. California has basically eliminated any opportunity to consider race or gender in, in universities or employment or outreach. And what we've seen is the plummeting of our numbers in terms of those who are getting contracts, those the vendors who, who people are getting employment. We don't see the increase that we should have. We don't, and we have this disparity, this wealth gap between women and men that's enormous and growing. And all of those things is because we in California don't have the opportunity to basically intervene when we see things that are biased based on race or gender. We don't have the opportunity to intervene. Why? Because it has been banned in California to consider it, even when we know we need to consider it. So the opportunity was there. And, and as I said, we, uh, we fought it every step of the way because we still had folks who were fighting against it because they didn't want it to go to the ballot. Uh, the first committee I went to, I only had three votes. I needed four, <laughs> you know, one wow. of those kind of things. Right. It gave us the worst committee to go to. I had three, I needed four. And I called every member of the Black Caucus and the Chicano Caucus and said, you got to find me another vote. And, um, and I had already been kind of working with one of my Republican friends to see if he would support it if, if I got in a crunch, at least to get it to the floor, give people on the floor the opportunity to vote for it. And um, he said he'd think about it, you know. And uh, I got up that morning and, and I got a call as, as I was walking into the committee that I had vote number four. And, uh, and that was great. Uh, we ended up with six votes coming out of that committee, which shocked everybody. Wow. You know, we ended up with six because I, because the guy, the, the Republican guy said, this is something that should go to the ballot. And he supported it. And that shamed the last Democrat who said, I can't let a Republican outdo me. So we ended up with six <laughs> to one, and it would shock everybody at the Capitol because they thought, what has Shirley done? I mean, she has done the impossible. Can this thing- Superwoman. Since they were supposed to fail in the committee, they had expected to fail in the committee, and therefore no one would be on would be put on blast for not supporting equal opportunity and access. So we um, we got out of the committee six to one, which shocked the Capitol. At that point, people started becoming a believer. They said, you know, maybe she could do it after all. Maybe we could do it after all. Maybe this will happen after right. all. And um, 
immediately we began to work on getting that 54. And, uh, and, and, and that was important to get more than 54. So we got 60, you know, and then we had to go get 27 and we got 30, you know, one of those kind of things. So we got out of both houses, right. but we worked, we worked every, every member, we challenged everybody that was there to see that this is an opportunity that we did not miss. And since then we've been, um, you know, the committee has extremely diverse, huge committee of diverse individuals, all ages, the university students are fired up. They're the ones who wanted it in the first place. They're fired up and, and organizing and, and advocating for uh, uh, Proposition 16 across the state. Uh, we've been successful in getting many of our major mayors and, and uh, I just got a note concerning our Board of Supervisors organization and supporting of it. Um, it's statewide and so we've got the momentum there that is really exciting in California. The students are protesting and that's a good thing because they're, they're forcing those who don't want to do things to realize that they have to. They cannot just continue to allow this to exist without those of us who have the ability to bring change, to bring some change. Um, I just got off the phone with some folks before this and, and they're part of a, a, a chamber of commerce and they were looking at the issue of, of all the money that came down uh, and didn't go to some of the small black businesses. And so they're struggling and suffering and this is one of the effects of it. And this chamber uh, uh, chair in San Diego decided, the African-American woman at the black chamber, uh, we're gonna raise this money ourselves to help these buildings. And so she called me to tell me that, that in the four weeks they've already raised a half a million dollars and they are they are 400 million 400,000 short of the million that they, they've commit, committed to raise in the next four weeks and uh, but they've decided that they're going to take some ownership for uh businesses that are failing and small businesses and to support them and i just think it's amazing that they feel empowered that they can do this without you know crying about what's not happening they're deciding to make things happen themselves and so a lot of folks are getting inspired by these young people who are in the streets who are challenging us and who are making us do some things and attending meetings that we had never thought about attending before yeah it's great it's wonderful no no you definitely done a great <clears throat> job of, of taking a uh, case on momentum and something you mentioned was reparations and you know we had uh, senator mitchell on i guess earlier uh last month and kind of talked about this subject a little bit and kind of at this time you know the george Floyd thing was new and and the you know conversation around reparations were uh, a little bit unknown. Um, I guess, can you kind of fill us in on what kind of reparations you're talking about? And I guess how, how they would look going forward? Well, you know, what we've done is we've modeled ourselves somewhat after the uh, HR 40 in, in Washington, because I think it would be unfair to say, <clears throat> well, we're going to have reparations and this is what it's going to look like. Um, what we've done is we've asked for the formation of a, of a reparations commission uh, that the governor and the speaker in the pro tem will, will form. Uh, and their goal will be to basically look at what uh, the damage of uh, slavery and has done in California and to recommend things that need to be done to repair the damage. Um, and it can take a form in a, a whole lot of ways. You know, some look at, uh, there's a reparations committee uh, in a city in Illinois, and they're, they're looking at home ownership, that the, the, the devastation of home ownership of people taking people's land over years has caused uh, the, that community to have very little, little resources in terms of African-Americans having some kind of a family wealth. And so they are working to take resource money from a, their, um, I guess their marijuana sales and basically channel a portion of that into home ownership. What we've asked is the formation is for a commission to form and probably in about a year and a half to come back and tell us what we need to do. Uh, uh, the, the reality is there'll be lots of informational sessions around the state we hope that will help people to understand 
California's role in slavery, because oftentimes we don't think California was a slave state, and it wasn't a slave state by law, but it was, but it did participate in slavery by uh, creating um, uh, issues and, and with laws that basically limited um, slave movement. It didn't provide sanctuary for slaves who had emancipated themselves. It created a fugitive slave law that, that then allowed the government to pick up individuals and send them back to where they came from. It, uh, 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 states away who was enslaved. If you brought your slave to California, you had every, you would have laws that would protect you uh, for keeping them in slavery and those kinds of things. So we did that. We also had insurance companies that in, that basically insured slaves for slaveholders so that they could uh, be here and have their slaves uh, basically insured and their and their investments protected. And and, and insurance companies had made money on on uh, on insuring slaves. And so. Um, uh, so there was a lot of things that took place in California. California had redlining laws that did not allow um, uh, uh, banks to uh, to give loans in certain areas. We obviously had covenant laws in our in our deeds that didn't allow African Americans to buy land in certain places and houses that people couldn't couldn't rent or couldn't sell their house to to African Americans. And those are were written in the deeds right. of the property. So we we have a lot of things that really stymie the development, the economic development, and the social development of um, of African Americans. And because of the the various limitations and where people could buy housing, we in fact had. Uh, what they call de facto segregation. We didn't have it by law, but we had it by fact. And the fact that we had uh, neighborhood schools and all those neighborhoods were black. And so that limited the number where, where people could go to school. And you created segregated schools with second, they were somewhat second class schools with limited curriculum and all those kinds of things. And so all of those had an impact. So when we begin to ask, how did that impact California? We can look very carefully and say, look what we did to stymie the development, to take away people's land. Uh, an African-American and, and an Indian could not go to court and speak against a white person. So if this person took your land, you couldn't go there and defend yourself or fight for your land. So there were a lot of things that took place. So this commission will look at those things and see what impact that they continue to have today in terms of land ownership and economic development and education, and then make recommendations what needs to happen. Who knows, maybe it becomes a situation for a certain number of years that tuition is free at the University of California, that 12% of the population of African-Americans will be admitted to the University of California. I mean, there could be an awful lot of different kinds of things that happen as a result of trying to repair the damage that was done. We look to this commission to provide us with those with a number of things that need to happen in order to be, to take California to a different level of purity. Yeah. You know, that's, that's fascinating. You know, last week we had the pleasure of having uh, Jose Medina on and we had an in-depth talk about kind of ethnic studies and the importance of that is, you know, kind of having it in the high school curriculum. You have a similar uh, bill, you know, dealing with um, college courses and ethnic studies. Yeah. You know, yeah. as your background as a professor, can you kind of give us your take on the importance of ethnic studies? Well, you know, it, it's been interesting. My background is I, I spent um, 40 years at San Diego State and was the founder of Africana Studies and uh, was also uh, an associate faculty in Chicano Studies and Women's Studies and instrumental in the development of some of those departments. So I, I spent 40 years in the university working in ethnic studies and fighting for ethnic studies and fighting for the rights of, of students and faculty to teach the subject and, to, and spent years um, what I call professionalizing the discipline because I was president of the National Council for Black Studies for a number of years as well as on their board of directors and, and on their editorial board of a number of journals. So I have an extensive background in ethnic studies. Um, when when the, the Black Caucus, um, when we got the new chancellor, Chancellor Tim White, 
met with him. And at that time, there was an effort to try to uh, weaken ethnic studies across the state. Uh, different campuses were trying to take resources out of those departments. Uh, they were trying to take Long Beach and turn it into a program, take its departmental status, without really any good reason for doing this, because it had good enrollment, had great faculty, those kinds of things. And so, um, so as a result, we told the, we asked the chancellor, we said, you know, you need to form a committee and a commission and, and figure out what's going on with ethnic studies in the state because California is the home of ethnic studies. It started here in California in, in the first department in 1969. And it's, you know, so we were coming up on its 50th anniversary, this legacy of developing not only the program at San Francisco State, but all the programs that grew out of San Francisco State's Black Studies Department and across the nation. And California has the, probably the largest number of ethnic studies departments in the nation when I was chair of the National Council, because all of our CSUs either have programs or, or departments. Our University of California has programs or departments. The PhD programs are in California. There are only a, a few, maybe five or six uh, universities across the nation. Uh, some of the major ones at UCLA and UC Berkeley are here in California in terms of the state institutions. We have master's degree programs. So California has set the standards for ethnic studies across the nation. and. Uh, and as a result, we, we asked him, we said, you know, this is something that we should celebrate, something that California has done in a very innovative way in a state that's so diverse. You know, you've got a huge diverse student population in our public schools. Almost 70% of our kids are kids of color in our public schools. Our state is, is, is now, is no longer majority white. So we, we have this legacy that we should celebrate. So he formed the Blue Ribbon Commission. And the Blue Ribbon Commission met for about a year, and one of its recommendations was that it came out was that there should be three units of ethnic studies uh, required of all CSU students. And so this was on his Blue Ribbon Committee. It went before the Board of Trustees. They accepted the report, and that was that. So every so we've been asking for the last three or four years, what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to actually put forth a proposal for ethnic studies? You know, what are you going to do? And uh, and he had not done anything. So he had not done anything to do that, and we kept asking. Asking. So Mr. Medina put forth the K-12 proposal. Uh, and uh, so about three years ago, we put forth the, K uh, the uh, university proposal. We held it for a year waiting for Mr. Medina to finish his proposal, but then decided this past uh, year, year before last, that we would put this issue before. And so we put forth the recommendation that there would be three units of ethnic studies required at the CSU. Now, we didn't require that you had to have a department. We didn't require, we didn't tell you what courses you had to do. We, and we didn't say that the courses couldn't already be found in, say, for instance, history department might have a class in Chicano yeah. history. We said you have to have three units of ethnic studies required, and the faculty can determine what the courses are. So we weren't really writing curriculum and, and determining the content and the philosophy and all that stuff of the course. We're just saying you got to have three units of ethnic studies, that every student graduates from the CSU should have at least three units of ethnic studies. And we felt that that was important because of the students who were in California. The fact that we've got um, students who are here now who, who are from all different kinds of backgrounds. Uh, we felt very strongly about that because uh, CSU is really the number one producer of teachers in the state of California. 70, 80% of most, I know in San Diego State, at, at San Diego City, is about 85% of all of our teachers come from San Diego State. So we prepare the teachers for, for the state. So those teachers should know something about the kids that they're teaching. 
Uh, and those of us who are business or, or uh, other persons should know something about the people we live with in California. And so, and, and so we thought it was timely. And given all the things that are happening in the streets, it's extremely important that we have a curriculum that really uh, allows individuals to at least have three units out of 120 credits. I mean, it's three that's either focused on Black, Brown, Native Americans, or Asians. And so um, uh, that's the proposal. And uh, we got some pushback consistently from the uh, region, from the board, of, from the chancellor's office, because his thing is, well, this is my job. This is my purview. I'm supposed to, we're supposed to write the curriculum. And our position was, you're right, so write it, okay? Write the curriculum and respond to this need that we have, uh, which didn't happen. And so, uh, so we pushed forward the curriculum. Uh, this curriculum, that, that we push forth the recommendation that there be three units of ethnic studies. It's only at the very end that the um, chancellor decided to put forth a proposal, which is a, a non-proposal, because it says, okay, you have to take three units of ethnic studies or three units of social justice, but you don't have to take ethnic studies to graduate. You can take the social justice class, which could be anything in the world. It doesn't have to deal with the, the major groups that we're facing in California. It doesn't have to deal with U.S. history at all. It can be something completely different. And we've seen different recommendations of courses that, are, that have absolutely nothing to do with the, with, the, with the issues we face in California. So we didn't consider that an adequate proposal. It was not supported by the faculty senate. It was not supported by even the board of trustees that was sent to them, and they, they agreed to it because he's the chancellor. But it was not brought by the Senate or the faculty nor the students had it to weigh in on this recommendation. And it just came up recently. And so as a result, they supported that recommendation. Well, this, uh, the bill 1460 has gotten out of the assembly, it's gotten out of the Senate, it has gotten out of all uh, appropriations committee, it has gotten out on a bipartisan support. So it's not some marginal bill that we hadn't thought about. This was debated on the floor and in every committee that we've had dealing with education and it has passed them all, and it's currently sitting on the governor's desk. So the governor now is in a difficult position, but then you run for governor to be in difficult positions, I assume, uh, that you have <laughs> to make a decision of whether or not we continue to um, hold on to tradition that does not serve us well, to say, oh, this is their purview, they have the right to create this, but others don't. And we know that occasionally has changed in times that, that happens. And at the same time, if you're telling me that one of the things we have to challenge in this country is institutional racism, then that's one of the things you have to challenge. Ethnic studies, with all of the ethnic studies that did not come to be in these, in, in, in on, on our universities because somebody thought it was a brilliant idea and some academicians went into the room and debated it and said, this is marvelous. Let's do this for California. No, it came into existence because some students protested threatened to shut down universities and did in San Francisco for six months. In San Diego, they burned trash cans in front of the president's office. And that's how I got hired, okay? That students were took to the streets to do what they needed to do to get ethnic studies done. And, um, and so when someone says to me, well, you know, it's not the traditional route, I have to remind them, I am not the traditional person. You know, my people are not the traditional people. We didn't come here as immigrants looking for a better life, okay? So my whole experience has not been traditional in that same sense, whether it's a student at UCLA or whether it's, you know, surviving the racisms of the PhD programs or whatever, I have fought for every step of the way. And oftentimes I had to basically challenge the rules that were sometimes written against me and even sometimes changed because of me, okay? So, um, 
as a result of that, I, I, you know, I, I pay homage to the rules and I'm a part of a system of rules, but I also know as a result of the system of rules that we change those rules often. So we are now at, on the governor's desk and he has a choice to make. One of his many difficult One choices to make. One of many difficult choices. And it may not be as, <laughs> as important as COVID, but it truly is to the student and the, and the, and the faculty in California. Yes. You know, an interesting part of what's going on right now is is we're all kind of being uh, forced to kind of question our history uh, as we're seeing kind of, you know, statues torn down, statues move, paintings being questioned. And kind of, you know, through this conversation of ethnic studies, it's like, you know, when we learn history, we learn it through one lens, and that's usually the exactly. lens written by a, a European uh, sect. Um, you know, what I guess, in, in your view, what what should we be doing about kind of these statues, some of these heroes we have in the past? You know, what is the solution of, of I guess, you know, learning history in the future? And, yeah. and how can we, I guess, ingrain ethnic studies as a part of our, our future history books? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you put up a statue anywhere, it's because you want folks to, to remember that, that person or that statue with fond memories. Um, if there's some other, you, you, wouldn't, you would think twice about putting up a statue of Hitler uh, in front of the Capitol, okay? Right. <laughs> now you laugh, right. but that's, that's true. And so, oh. but you would put him in a museum maybe because he's important to study in order to avoid doing it. But if you're gonna have mm -hmm. kids walk by and see individuals that they should want to emulate, you're gonna have these statues and these pictures of folks who are, who, who, this is who built the country. This is who built America. This is the great part of it. You don't pick people who are, who are trying to destroy the country, who, um, who in the end would have split the country in half uh, and, and cause the death of thousands of people because you wanted to succeed from the union. I mean, anybody sees that says those folks are, would be considered traitors by definition today. So, uh, but at the same time, if you want to hold on to some, some, some aspects of history that remind you uh, of, of days gone by that weren't necessarily that great for everybody, you would do that. So I think it's a healthy thing to always constantly assess and reassess who your heroes are, you know, because what you feel at this moment, once the true story is told, may be completely different. And you have to ask that question because we, are, we learn from history. We learn from the, the statues that are there. And that history is designed to motivate you. You know, one of the things I say uh, consistently on the floor every, every time we have a Black History Month or some history program is that history is the one subject we study every year of our life when we're in school. And you think, God, I, I know 1492. Why am I still doing 1492 and 1865? My God, you know, there's something else to learn. And you discover it without knowing it. You, you, you realize that history is not just about facts and numbers. History is about the development of the personality and the character of the individual that's there that you study history because it makes you the person that you are. It strengthens you, it helps you have a legacy, it gives you something to stand on. And when you exclude people's history, you give them very little to stand on. And, uh, and so what happens is that the exclusion of, of, of everybody else's history other than one makes people believe that they didn't do anything. You know, I remember when I was a kid and you know, you read these stories and there would always be this person uh, they, that somebody who, who rode in and who took over a whole village or country or whatever. And the first thing they did was they start burning books. And you think, why would you burn a book? I mean, what, how dangerous is a book? But knowledge is right. dangerous. It's powerful. And so people would go in and the first thing they would do in any kind of revolution is they would try to destroy the people's history of themselves. 
because they knew if they destroyed the history this time, if they kept doing that, then over time, people would forget the story and therefore they would forget their history. And then you could write whatever history you wanted them to have on their mind. And that would keep them either in subjugation to you or would make them uh, not value themselves or whatever history you wanted to do, you could write it and they would believe it. And so what happens in this process is, is the fact that we take away from individuals from their history, they lose a sense of importance who they are. And they don't understand sometimes the struggles that have been, uh, uh, that have happened in the past for them and for others. And they have no real appreciation for themselves and sometimes even for the system or the institutions that they represent. So history is important, it's profound. That's why we teach it every year. It is for young people to understand and to become, they become great because they know that. I often say, when we, uh, many of us learned about this so during the movie Hidden Figures, most of us were shocked to know that four black women were responsible for for going to the moon. I mean, for, for, for responsible for all of the work that had been done. We had no mm. idea of that. And I say to my colleagues, just think what 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 young women would be doing if they knew that they were responsible for space travel. That it was these hidden figures, these, these calculators, these black women who were who were basically validating all the data before the computers came out that it, we wouldn't have such difficulty recruiting young women into science because they would own it you know they would say we are the scientists we are the calculators we're the brilliant people in mathematics why because right. the story would tell that it would tell them that yes there were men who were who were, uh, who were in the machines and doing this and that, but there were these women who had such pro who had such brilliance and knowledge that they basically made space travel possible and safe and so, you know, history is, and so women, when they discovered that, I said, listen, we have spent so much time trying to tell young girls, math is something that women can do. Science is good for women, you know, uh, that women can do these hardcore sciences. And yet we have had the history right in front of us, but hidden from us for all these years. And now we discover after the fact that this is true. And so we're still struggling with, do, can women do math? Can women do science? You know, right. and, and yet that would have been a, a non-issue if we had had the history. We'd have a whole, whole different attitude toward those subjects and women and their prominence in those fields. So history is important. And, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we have to share everyone their history. And what we found in, in, in ethnic studies in Arizona and some other places that when young people are presented with their history, they become different people. And we see, I saw that every day at the university. When students yeah. learn who they were. They learn the greatness of their history. They start, they start researching their families and all those kinds of things. They had a greater sense of pride for how difficult life was for their families. They had a great difficult pride over the obstacles that their parents overcame and their families overcame just to survive. Uh, they had a greater sense that these are really some strong and enduring people, uh, much more than the image that they would see on television. And so it really provides, and, and what we saw was the students' grades improved and, and increased. Even at the, at the Capitol, when we had, um, we did an ethnic studies day and we had a resolution. It was interesting because many of the members stood up and talked about how they had gone to the university and they were smart students, but they felt so left out and so alienated. And then they got into an ethnic studies class and they began to learn about themselves and their people and how hard their people had worked to get them to the university. 
and how brilliant some of them were in terms of their contributions to the country. And it made a difference in them. Every, every legislator of color talked about how ethnic studies changed their lives. And, and that's why it's so important that we have it as a subject matter. In, in our universities, in our high schools, I've had uh, uh, conference calls with the superintendent and high school students, and each one of them tells me who's in ethnic studies is somewhere in the state, how central that is to the, who they are and what they're doing and their aspirations as they move forward with their education. So it is a motivator and it's something that we should basically embrace immensely and say this is what we have to do for our kids, but also for ourselves and not just for black kids, it's for all students. Uh, my students who were, and I had lots of white students walk in my class, you can tell it was a black studies class or what kind of class. But my white students who are in the, who are now in, in San Diego as professionals are totally different kinds of professionals because of the ethnic studies classes they had. Right. You know, I guess kind of to turn back to a, an, another topic, maybe it's a bit tired at this point, uh, COVID-19. <laughs> Can you kind of, I guess, talk to us a bit about, you know, I guess how COVID-19 is uh, affecting your district and kind of what, what do you think the solutions are moving forward? Well, it's no question that COVID-19 has revealed to us the tremendous cracks in this system, you know, how broken we are. Because, um, you know, when we start asking questions, why is it that people of color are dying more than anyone else. You know, why are young people being infected more than and particularly kids of color? You know, why are they uh, doing this? And you have to begin to say, you know, there are some social and some political issues in, in our society that has basically produced it. I mean, you, you look at um, uh, just simple living conditions. Normally they live in much more crowded conditions in communities with, in houses with less ventilation and air and those kinds of things, which become breeding grounds for, for this thing to grow. Uh, but you also find out that they're, most of them are the essential workers. You know, they're the people working in these fast food restaurants and these places where people have to go to work. Even though they're making the least amount of money, they're the essential workers. Or uh, as I was talking with one of my nieces, and, and you know, when you look at the the hospital and you find these, uh, these uh, uh, nurse assistants who don't make a lot of money, you know, but they're the main ones in and out of those rooms at the hospital and they were, and, and they were fighting to get their, their protective equipment and people didn't want to give them protective equipment and all those kinds of things. Um, and yet they were the essential workers who were potentially going to get infected and take the disease home to their families. So when we look at this, you know, they're the ones that the essential workers they're the ones with the difficult uh, living conditions. They're also living communities, which I consider to be what I call health deserts, where they don't have um, uh, lots of medical facilities, and they don't have emergency rooms, and they don't have hospitals. You know, Part of my district in San Diego, um, and San Diego has amazing medical facilities at the University of California. Absolutely amazing. I've, I've been right. in a hospital where they, you know, where they take you into a room where the air is clean every few seconds and it's just like perfect, perfect air all the time. So that if you're, if you're getting an infusion or anything that's happening to you, they can, they can basically clean this air so that people can visit you where before they couldn't. I mean, just amazing things happen happening at this mm -hmm. hospital. But this hospital is far, far removed. It's at the University of California, far removed from the poor persons in the community who may never walk through those doors at that hospital. Uh, and so when you look at it, you don't have hospitals oftentimes in our communities. You don't have emergency rooms for people to go. You don't have urgent care for them to go to. And, and so you, and for a while, we didn't have many testing sites. And even now the testing sites are overflowing. And so you don't have 
uh, the kind of support and medical assistance that many of them need uh, to stay healthy. Uh, we don't have, uh, a lot of them don't have healthy grocery stores that people can buy fresh vegetables and food to keep themselves healthy. So they've got a lot of underlying conditions that are that are there whether it's diabetes or or high blood pressure or you know heart conditions and all those kinds of things so you have you have these 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 inequities that exist in the society when you have those kinds of things that are there and then you have a covid you have a disease you have a pandemic that comes in and overlays in that community then you have the making of truly truly a tragic situation for those who are poor and we're seeing it in black and brown communities up and down the state a tragic situation of us dying more from other from from this pandemic than any other group, and um, and so it's really unfortunate. You know, we we look at that health issue. If you look at the business issue, as I pointed out, you know, you've got small businesses that we have some who've been in business, uh, some iconic restaurants in L.A. and places. Folks have been in business for 30, 40 years, um, but because they had redlining and they don't have the ability to have. Uh, reserve resources and, and they're living, you know, uh, basically making ends meet every month to, to keep their business alive. Uh, this pandemic comes along, the government drops money into the state and who gets it as all these chain stores and, and restaurants are getting millions of dollars of uh, pay, pay, payroll protection money and almost none of it going to those poor businesses. And so we're looking at a situation where some of those iconic businesses might be failing. And, uh, and not able to recover. And so that would be tragic. So when we look at the, the inequities in the society, you know, we see that. And then we have COVID coming in and, 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 and there's no respect of persons. So the conditions you have make you prime for uh, getting infected and dying from it. And so we're seeing far more uh, people of color dying from this than any other group. And that's so tragic. And so um, it is surely something that we have to address. We've spoken to the governor about it and said, you know, as we're getting ready to recover, we don't want to recover and be the same people we were before. We have to recover and be better. You know, we have to address these inequities that exist in our society, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, health care, uh, all those kinds of things. We have to address them. Uh, otherwise, the next pandemic will have the same effect as this. You know, you touched upon, I guess, diabetes as, as one of the underlying conditions, you know, I as I've learned, it's, I guess, the second leading uh, cause of mortality uh, among COVID-related deaths. I guess, Kenna, what's being done, I guess, to, you know, help these with diabetes and, and their glucose monitoring? Well, you know, part of the problem, uh, it goes on and on, it has to do with health care. It has to do with ongoing intervention. It has to do with uh, having a, a physician that you can call and, and get support and having medication. You know, uh, uh, we've had several bills that have addressed the issue of, of us putting a cap on how much insulin can cost. Uh, because, you know, when folks uh, don't get their insulin and, and become ill, uh, the cost that we pay to keep them in the hospital is much greater than the cost would have been for insulin for them to have. And, uh, and so we have poor folks with, uh, with truly chronic conditions such as diabetes and, um, and are unable to monitor and manage it because of the lack of medication and the lack of monitoring on the part of their physician. Uh, that becomes important. You know, if you're diabetic, you not only need your medication, you need to be monitored periodically so that you're taking in the right amount of medication and you're not over-medicating yourself. And you also need the right time. As I said, if you don't live in a community that has a good uh, depart a grocery store, then you're not, then you're getting uh, either processed food or something else that's not good for you as a diabetic. Uh, there have been a number of community agencies that work to try to help diabetics have 
better diets and better input and we've got some physicians, some physicians who form some organizations that go into those teen homes and help them so that they can avoid people from going to the hospital and, and, and because of they're in a diabetic crisis. But um, surely it is, it is uh, you know, it's, we've learned how to manage diabetes, but, but it requires a commitment to do that in terms of the individuals, but it also requires uh, the kind of medical assistance and support and, uh, and, and the community issue of, of, of grocery stores and healthy food and all those kinds of things. And most of our associations, health associations, work very hard to do that. Um, we have not done, and, and it was a proposal by one of our physicians. He said, you know, this is, this is a disease that's killing us. Diabetes is and killing families from generation to generation. And we could actually address it if, because we have all the medical knowledge to do it, but we don't seem to have the will to do it in terms of making sure that this is something that we have clinics for and we help people to manage it and to understand what right. they need to do to, to, to basically get it under control. And so when you run across a pandemic like uh, COVID, you know, diabetes is going to be, you know, those who are dying are going to die from, from COVID and the high numbers of folks dying have di are, are diabetic. Yeah. You know, Shirley, I've, I've always admired, I guess, your bravery in, in taking on these big issues, never afraid to take on special interests. Uh, you know, we learned that, you know, your career was, I guess, born out of fire of the ashes of the riots now. And it explains a lot. Um, so I guess what what do you have planned, I guess, for next year, you know, on, on dealing with some big issues and, and dealing with some, you know, I guess, more further police reform or, or other social justice issues? Well, you know, it's always interesting. Before I can even finish one year, somebody's always asking me about next year. And, and I would say, I'm, I'm a rest. <laughs> You're out of time. You know, you know I say, I'm a, I'm a rest next year. And then all of a sudden, yeah. somebody comes up with an idea. And I thought, you know, I got to deal with that. I got to I got to deal with cobalt treatment in Africa in terms of young children collecting that stuff and dying, you know. Um, uh, there have been a number of things brought to us that we have to address. I do plan to delve more into education. And, and uh, we did some things this year to make sure those resources go to the kids that need to be. We've got a $300 million grant that's still being administered to a poor neighborhood. And then we've got um, this year making a law, making it that they have to give the money to the kids that it was designed for because they, they skimmed all $300 million, uh, that should have gone to poor neighborhoods uh, from just two or three districts last year. So. So uh, I've, I've got a, a piece in there that people aren't happy about, but it's going to get to the governor's desk and it's going to get signed because it, is, it, is, it, it demands that we do that. Um, and of course, this new environment where this distance learning is having a dramatic impact upon poor kids. And uh, there are, uh, you know, 20, 30 percent of our kids who, who have not even turned on their, 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 uh, their, their uh, computers to do the homework. So, you know, every time I think I'm a rest, uh, the, the society presents me with another challenge. And um, like I said, I hadn't planned to do ACA 5. I was going to let somebody else do it. And I discovered my name was written yeah. down first, so it became my bill. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm like John Lewis. I believe in good trouble. You know, I, I left right. the university when I retired from university. And I had planned to really spend the rest of my time, half of my time, in, in either Ghana or South Africa. And the other time here. Uh, and working on some fun projects and some writing projects that I had planned to do. Uh, but when I decided to, um, uh, when Tony Atkins talked me into coming to the assembly, uh, I said then, if, if I come um, and interrupt my wonderful life, <laughs> you know, to come to the legislature, okay. I have to make it count. I have to make it count. And uh, after this, this year, uh, if I'm reelected, I'll have possibly four more years of uh, being in the assembly. 
Um, and I want my legacy to be that this woman made it count. You know, that she interrupted right. her wonderful life because she wanted to make it count, make it count for the kids who needed to have it count because somebody made it count for me. And so I can, I, I will, I'm sure that whatever we decide to do in the coming year will be equally exciting because California just seems to keep bringing new stuff to me all the time. Uh, social justice issues will be there. Educational issues will be there. Uh, anything that I believe that is unjust, that others might be afraid to do, but it's important to do for people who can't do it for themselves, the stuff that I do. You know, if everybody wants to do it, I'll give it to them. You go do it. That's fine. Handle it. But, um, <laughs> but if everybody's kind of looking at it like, I don't know, then, um, and it's, and it's somebody standing there, some little kid or some family, some people who really need a voice for them. Um, even if I, you know, I tell people I'm not even sure half the time, I don't know if I'm winning or not. Yeah, you'll win. You'll, you'll get it done. Uh, I'm gonna pick it up. I'm gonna take right. it forward because somebody did it for me. So I just, I have to make these years count. Yeah. Because that's what it's all about. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Shirley. Another tremendous year, and we look forward to catching up with you later Sounds and uh, catching up on what you're going to do next. It sounds great. Listen, thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Had a good time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.